Welcome to episode 120. Today, Stephanie Ledger joins us to talk about her balanced literacy framework for serving life. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. If I was to ask to teach life students right now, I would not know where to begin. I would feel so incredibly overwhelmed because I have no experience with life. However, I do know experts and teachers who I can turn to, such as Canadian educator, Stephanie Ledger. In this highly practical conversation, Stephanie will share with us how to create a balanced literacy approach for life. Get ready to pause and take lots of notes. It's a highly actionable conversation. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited and honored to have a fellow educator, Stephanie Letcher, to the on the podcast. She is a teacher from Canada, and we always love our Canadian teachers, as I know they listen to the podcast often. So uh, welcome, Stephanie, to the podcast. Would you tell us a story um, about working with one of your kids that has really uh, informed your practice today? Sure, there are many, <laughs> but I um, I think I'll tell you about the one where the two areas of working with MLLs intersect. Um, I mentioned that years ago I worked in elementary and I was at uh, a school with a large number of students who were highly literate in, in their primary language or languages. And so a colleague and I started a dual language book writing club in which students wrote original stories in English and their home language. Um, the focus was on process. It was, uh, it was all about the translanguaging that happened, uh, the conversations between partnered students who shared the same first language and um, how they uh, wrote either fiction or nonfiction stories in some cases, sometimes personal experience stories and uh, it was a wonderful thing but um, one day one of my newcomer students of refugee background he was from uh, the Republic of Congo um, and had had no formal education and was non-literate in Swahili asked me if he could join our club and uh, you know the teacher in me of course wanted him to join this club and that sounded great any other club would have been fitting but this club, we thought, required students to be literate in their first language, or at least have semi-literacy, because they were writing in two languages. And so I said uh, to him, a gentle, I'll call it a gentle no at, at the time, and offered him some alternative clubs that he could be in. But this student persisted. The student, as gently, but <laughs> um, just kept coming back and saying, Miss, I really want to be in this club. And so it occurred to me that we needed to adapt the club for the student. And so we had him join and he actually had an older brother who was in high school that uh, was literate in Swahili. And he came during his, uh, his spare time each day from the high school to work with his brother to, to write this book, which ended up being an incredible experience. And what, what really struck my colleague and I is it didn't matter that he wasn't literate in Swahili and it didn't even really matter if he became fully literate in Swahili. What mattered is that he had access to the printed code, the code that for him represented his um, his background, his uh, experiences, and I'm, I'll say his identity, really. And it, it was just to such a transformative experience for me, um, you know, just what that printed code, Swahili in this case, represented it to him. Um, and I, so since then, it's, it's informed my research and my uh, practice, I feel that 
our students of all backgrounds, but particularly SLIPE, deserve access to what I'm going to call the power code of the dominant um, society where, where a student has, has come to. So uh, it was a real shift. It was um, shifting from, you know, thinking about what were we doing in the book club, how were we going to do it, and then who should join to who wants to join the club, how are we going to adapt it, and then, you know, what will it look like? That's a lovely story because it it embodies the main thing that I feel like I've experienced in my career. The way, when we believe something about a kid, it really impacts the way we teach. But when we have that shift in thinking, or when we have a shift in seeing, we teach in a different way. Right? That's right. And you were sharing that, like how you, you were so vulnerable in saying, I used to think this way, but then how students have helped, uh, that student helped you open see in a different way i think listening to the students i mean they we we all try to do that as educators but we're often reminded to do it even more i think they know what is best for them right. so i'm thinking about dr jim cummings quote and he said when we uh, when we don't allow students home languages at school we don't allow the student to be at school and so by just having your, by saying, yes, we want you to use your Swahili, even if you don't know the code, uh, there, we can find a way to get there, right? And so this child shared him, himself, his experience, but then he also, I loved it, that he brought his brother, right, into the so club. Wonderful. Right, and then the school district was okay. It was like, yes, we wanna support this experience. Let's find a way to release him from this schedule to be part of this. That's right. It had actually led to grandparents joining the club and all sorts of other family members for other students, which was really great. Um, but yes, when you mention um, Dr. Cummins, the image I always think of uh, with him is he talks about a bottle and that first language or primary language is stuck in the bottleneck. Um, or, or that, you know, there's so a wealth of experiences in the actual bottle, but if you turn it over, it can't get through the bottleneck to be expressed in English. Let's That's talk right. about early, uh, early literacy development. Yeah, so um, maybe I'll start with what, what does it look like um, just in general, and then how have we, and when I say we, this is very much a collaborative effort with a, with a team of teachers and system leaders, but how do we adapt it specifically for multilingual learners? For people that may or may not be familiar with early literacy pedagogy, uh, for us, it's, it's rooted in some of the work of Marie Clay, and uh, you might be familiar with the Reading Recovery Program. Um, and so that was the initial training that I received. Also, Fountas and Pinnell have, have also done a lot of work in this area. And really, the basis of it is um, a balanced literacy program, very much so that is um, teaching early reading and writing skills within the context of a book. And, and the context of that book um, could be fiction, it could be nonfiction, but it, it is rooted in a guided reading lesson that then expands to writing about the book, learning about new vocabulary in the book, uh, learning about grammatical structures, and doing what we call word work, which is um, you know phonics work. So that that's sort of the the basis of early literacy instruction. It was developed for primary age students, and and per, predominantly for um, uh, students that I, I guess not necessarily for multilingual learners. Let's say, although there has been some work by Marie Clay talking about um, using it in that context. So. Um, the thing, though, that after receiving training in it that I loved and saw the potential for MLLs is that it's asset-based. So the whole premise of, of um, running record assessment, for example, when you are analyzing a running record, which is just very simply a sort of a written account of what a student is doing when they are reading, is looking at what the student is doing, not what they are not doing. 
And, and so that is, I just think, so important, of course, when we're working with MLLs. And I'll talk about some specifics in a minute. But um, it's just that looking at what our students are bringing um, when they begin to learn English. The other thing I found is extremely adaptable program. So the way we have adapted it is um, made it age appropriate because we're, we're using it with secondary aged um, adolescent SLIFE and uh, culturally relevant. So that can be done both the age appropriate and culturally relevant is um, the types of books we select. So they, they are leveled books so that we can measure uh, the progression from one level to the next and also teaching a guided reading lesson within the zone of proximal development. So not too hard, not too easy, just right zone. That's how we can measure that. But we're picking a lot of nonfiction texts because these students are learning to read and reading to learn at the same time. They, they don't have the time as elementary students do, especially younger elementary, to learn to read first and then learn the content. It, it has to be uh, simultaneous. So um, the culturally relevant, it's amazing in the types of books we've chosen. If, a, if students are from a desert community, for example, then we're going to put nonfiction books that relate to that or so books that relate to maybe physical environment, but also experiences of the students. This is not a prepackaged program. This is taking a, a framework and my colleagues and I then selected books and um, strategies that we felt fit the learners we are working with. I know that you're working with secondary SLIFE students, and that's really impressive to, to work in the middle school and high school context to get students who have formally interrupted education and you're making this happen. And I love that you're not saying like, let's start with uh, content that is below grade level. You use at grade level content and you just happen to apply a balanced literacy framework to that. So I'd love to see what this looks like. So before we get there, I guess, what are the benefits of conducting diagnostic yeah. formative early literacy assessments? Well, we talked about asset base, no question. So whenever um, I'm training teachers on how to do running record assessment and there's other early literacy assessments, it's always focusing on uh, the known, working with the known, starting with this is what they know, and then this is where they need to build to next. Very incremental, sort of uh, manageable steps and goals. And also articulating that to the students, I think is really important. For me, I, I some of my most powerful um, conferences with students, whether in person or or video, is is pointing out to a student, hey, this is what you're doing. This is really fantastic. Uh, and then how would you try that strategy over here in another area where maybe they didn't apply it? Or um, I know that in your primary language, you uh, have a different word order when you're, when you're reading. Maybe you, the noun comes before the adjective. And if you know a little bit about students' languages, which isn't hard to find out, you can just <laughs> Google up the information, um, then I see why you were doing that. That's really smart. That shows me that you know a lot in your, in your language. Now, in English, it's just different. Um, and we reverse the order. And usually we have the adjective before the noun, for example. Um, so it's not a, this is English, uh, this is the way to do it, and this is better. It's just this is different. And primary language becomes a point of reference. And whether a student, when I speak about SLIFE, and if a student doesn't have any print literacy skills in their first language, then it becomes their oral language structures that they are transferring from. Whereas if they, it's, they have a bit of literacy, and many SLIFE are, are semi-literate in their, in their own language, so they have gaps in their education, but they do have some, then you can reference this as well uh, the print structure. So asset-based, working from the known. Um, if it's, I, I believe strongly if a student is working right within the sweet spot or the range um, of reading level that's right for them, then learning will be much more comprehensible, which to me is is the bottom line of everything. If, if you know, we're working with MLLs, we want them to understand uh, what they're learning and then they're going to be more engaged. And, and then they're going to be able to build from there. Um, so I, I feel 
it's very explicit instruction and it's not I guess I guess I've heard reference to blanket accommodations. It's not just one size fits all kind of instruction. And it's much, much more working with individual students' needs. Um, I believe fully in universal design and having structures in place that benefit all learners. But I also, I think that a lot of that can be proactive. Um, but I think that once we are teaching students, if we are using, like I said, um, for my research, if we're using data-informed information, then we can zero in on what specific students need, what groups of students need. So if we have a group of four or five students, maybe they all need to work on um, certain letter sounds or blends, or maybe they need to, maybe they all share the same first language and are confusing the word order um, in English. So comprehensible. And um, I talked about empowering. I just think that we owe it to our students especially the students that haven't had the opportunity to attend school to no fault of their own for a variety of reasons. We owe it to them to teach them the code <laughs> and I'm calling code printed literacy, right? Um, yeah, and it's, it's uh, responsive. That, that's the other thing is when you are teaching, if, if you're able to differentiate on, you know, during the lesson, the guided reading lesson, for example, you can be responsive to what students are showing you they need at the time. And if one student's ready to move on and work on a higher level of something and another isn't within a group, there's flexibility for that. I love when you said, let's focus on what the student uh, is doing instead of what they're not doing. And that's really the core of your framework and really the, the, the core of our service to students. We don't look at what they can't do, kind of like Wida says, we look at what they can do. Right. And I've learned a lot from researchers such as um, Alison Brasenio and Adria Klein are, are doing work with younger MLLs, so primary aged MLLs. But they talk a lot about um, identifying in a running record assessment, that, that simple sort of account of what a student is reading orally and what they're comprehending, really looking at evidence of language transfer from their primary language. And they call them language-related approximations, which uh, traditionally, sometimes um, they might be called miscues or errors in early literacy uh, pedagogy. But I love how they, they flip that to uh, approximations, which just means they are they're taking what they know, and which is often great proficiency in their, in their first language, and then they're approximating what they think it is in English. And if we can recognize that and catch the students doing that and let them know that what a wonderful thing they've done in, in identifying that, boy, I, I think then they're much more uh, ready to learn something new in English, whether it be a grammatical structure or whatever. Um, yeah, so an example of that, just, just quickly, um, I so I've taken that idea that I've read about in the research, and I've just created some um, multilingual codes, I'm calling it. So this is when you're analyzing a running record. It's not when you're scoring it. Um, you're just looking at how can this inform your instruction. And I have just a code L1, of course, for, for evidence of transferring from the first language and uh, um, unknown language structure or language structure issue or uh, vocabulary. Um, sometimes concepts, because life, uh, a lot of the emergent literates I work with, they can Maybe they didn't have formal education, so they don't know some academic conceptual information that you might learn in science class or geography class, but they have incredible pragmatic uh, experiences. Um, so just identifying, you know, where, where are the gaps and what maybe even interpreting something in a different way because of their past experiences. So I think if teachers can learn how to use this as a tool and identify it for MLLs using codes such as this, Boy, that the sky's the limit as far as um, informing instruction. I appreciate how you talked about earlier. Um, you're talking about language transfer. You're saying, what are the student doing with their home language that they're transfer, trying to transfer it to English? Which means we're not trying to erase what they're doing. We're trying to say, look at this approximation. Oh, it's great that you're putting the word uh, cat black. Oh, I see what you're trying to do. 
and yes, that's what we do in your language. That's great. I see you being a literate person in this way. I just want to show that you know that in English, this is how we do it. So you're going to have to add two, two of those structures. You already have one. Let's add another structure to that. Yes, and add is the key. That, right. That's exactly it. Right. Yeah, and, and students light up when you recognize what they already know, <laughs> whether it be in English or their, or their primary languages. Right. Um, Tan, you were asking a little bit about the, the content area um, because we're talking about adolescent students. Right. And uh, what, another important component of guided reading is doing what's called a book introduction and a picture walk. So basically helping the student connect to the topic before you start reading. But what I found is we can integrate some of the um, uh, MML strategies such as language experience approach in, not in place of, but, but where, um, where you would put a book introduction. So instead of just showing the pictures and talking about it, I have sometimes um, taken a science concept that's discussed in a level text and I've done a little mini science experiment prior to reading the book with the group. So uh, there was one, it was actually a folk tale. It wasn't even a, it wasn't a nonfiction text, but it was that story about um, like a, a crow or a raven out in the desert looking for water and there's a vessel and it's partly filled with water, but he can't get his beak into the top of the vessel to get the water. And so he takes little stones and drops them into the vessel until it raises the level of the water high enough to drink. Uh, which it, which is actually a folktale, cultural folktale, but I just did that very, you know, water displacement uh, volume type of mini experiment um, with the group before we read the book. So you, you're getting learning both ways. Right, right. Again, this is how I love um, how in the secondary setting, you're not pulling kids out and saying, just because you have formal education, we're going to start first where you would have ended. Let's say a kid ended at second grade. You wouldn't go back to second grade content to teach them. You would teach them, let's say that they're at 10th grade. You would teach them the 10th grade content. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and many of these students, as I said, have worked in you know, jobs um, either in, in a refugee camp or when in the country they were displaced to before coming um, to the country they're settling in. and. And so finding out about the background of the students and having them be able to relate those experiences to what they are learning in school, I think is critical as well. I, I remember very well a, a student who was um, sitting in a geography class learning about irrigation uh, and, irrigation and uh, accessing groundwater. And he didn't connect with what the teacher was talking about because they were drawing, you know, sketches on a whiteboard about it was a cross section of something uh, how you access the water and he didn't understand the concept of a cross section diagram and uh, then later in a guided reading session um, we were reading a book about groundwater i realized that he had been a well digger in the refugee camp and uh, he knew more than anybody in that class about that process and so it it just really uh, hit home to me how important it is to find out about the backgrounds of our students and start with the who, as I said, start with knowing who they are, the whole student, then how are you going to best um, teach them and make learning accessible, and then what content are you going to use? So that's the framework. So tell us more about, you talked about uh, using smoke of instruction. Tell us about what does that look like? for um, high school, middle school life? So when we do the running record uh, diagnostic or formative assessments, we figure out a, a level range that students um, sh should be reading in, where they can, where learning can be most comprehensible and where they can accelerate their, their literacy skills at the best uh, level. So uh, we would have groups of about five or six students and um, a range you know, would be within a, let's say two or three levels. And then a teacher would start there. There's um, maybe four different literacy centers with about five students in each group. The teacher would start with a guided reading lesson, would do um, book introductions, as I explained, or language experience approach. Then um, this would give the students a couple strategies on that they will encounter in that text. 
that might be phonemic strategies. It might be to do with syntax or uh, it's always about meaning, you know, new vocabulary and that sort of thing. Then the session is guided, which is very different than shared reading. It's very different than independent reading. The students are reading at their own pace, so not choral reading with the other students at their own pace. In the earlier levels, they're reading aloud, but in a whisper voice. Um, higher levels, they're reading inside their head. And then the teacher is going around circulating and listening in on the students and at appropriate times, um, giving them a prompt to uh, you know, help them get something without just telling them <laughs> what it is or more explicitly teaching something. Um, the idea is, the goal is independent reading. So it, it guided is uh, a critical way to help students to learn how to problem solve independently so that they can gradually do this at higher level text. So then the students uh, go to another center where it's more focused on, as I said, um, grammar structures, phonics, vocabulary development, but all connected to the same book that they started with and writing, writing. Um, I think of the, the book like an anchor, you know, it, it, it anchors all instruction that flows from it. And that context makes things very comprehensible for the students. And then they begin with another book after one rotation. We have uh, peer leaders, we call them, students that have been in the uh, early literacy program and then have progressed on that help lead our centers. And they actually get a, a, a course credit for that. And we have uh, educational assistants, volunteers. Uh, it's a whole team effort. <laughs> I appreciate the concept of um, having kids learn phonics, phonetic awareness, within the content that uh, is this connected to their science, social studies, their content classes. And so, um, is this, just to be clear, is this a framework where kids are learning this in their language development classes? So they would go to science classes, they would go to social studies, they would all go to their classes, they would, then they would go to their extra or an additional English class, and then this is the structure where we, this language specialist, would be helping them with. Yes, that's exactly it, Ton. Yes, so it, it's a, we call it a core-focused early, like early literacy class. And I'm talking specifically for emergent literates, not, not all MLLs, um, to help them close the gap. But yes, they are still in content area classes. And the, the really fascinating thing is after about a year of trying this with the core classes and all the success we were having, we had a lot of the content area teachers come to us and actually partner up with mentors um, that, who were teaching the, the core classes and using some of the strategies in their in their content classes. So I can think of, for example, a history teacher, and history is difficult for um, beginner level MLLs and especially students with um, gaps in formal education, who uh, created his own leveled history texts um, that he knew would be at the levels of the students, and then did a similar sort of rotation, um, you know, format. Always, that's sort of the middle of the class. There's always a, um, a mini lesson for the whole class at the beginning and sort of a bringing everything together at the end too. Um, but yeah, it was interesting, science teachers or just taking elements elements of it. Even the awareness of just knowing what reading level the, the students are at is very valuable for content area teachers. And so we've created some resources with some specific examples of what does a level five text look like? What does a level 10? text look like uh, with books that are age appropriate for adolescents. Um, so that that's been that's been great. So this is the balanced literacy part where you're saying, okay, we're not gonna teach phonics in isolation. We're just gonna learn about cat and bat and hat. We're gonna mm -hmm. learn uh, about we're gonna read a story about a kid who lives in a desert community. We're gonna to learn about um, pumping water out of uh, the groundwater. And that's going to be connected to social studies. That's going to be connected to science. So he's not just going to be learning like the cat in the hat when he is an eighth grader and his no, other exactly. colleagues. No, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So not lessons in isolation whatsoever, but encountering different elements of um, of text, syntax, you know, meaning everything within that 
context. And so in a, a particular kind of book, for example, um, maybe a book about science, you might have more words that have shun at the end, T-I-O-N or S-I-O-N, or certain types of root words. And so it, it's very much a, it's not a pre, there is a bit of a, a format in the lesson plan that's I think of like a menu or a guide for teachers. But if something else comes out in that lesson that the students are, um, you know, don't know or showing an interest in, then the teacher goes to that. So that's a flexibility I was talking about. Um, and the students sometimes find things that, that we haven't even thought about ahead of time. So I, I think there has to be that flexibility. And that's one thing that is uh, very doable in a small group. Um, that, that helps that. I, also, the conversations that happen in the small group, the personal connections to the topics is profound. I, I'm going to use that word. Uh, we've had students come from, you know, a very traumatic experiences and uh, they'll interpret the topic of a book from a very different perspective than we might. And so it's really heightened our teachers' awareness, not necessarily to say, oh, we're not going to teach that book, but to be sensitive and aware to approach it from a different perspective uh, or open to listening to students' interpretations. I recall a Rohingya, a group of students, there were several students that were Rohingya and they were, we were reading a book about transportation, different kinds of vehicles, which seemed pretty straightforward. And, you know, there's a bus and there's an airplane and then there happened to be a, a limousine in, in the book and there was a chauffeur and then a passenger in the limousine, which I don't think the writer of the book was really thinking about that as much as showing this is another kind of vehicle. But immediately coming from the background that these students um, had, one, they wanted to talk about the power dynamic. They, they wanted to talk about why is it that, that that person, the chauffeur, is having to drive this other person around. And uh, and so there was a whole conversation about that. And there was the space to do that because of the small group and because of the flexibility of this program. And um, often the vocabulary, I find that students want to learn, even if they're, you know, newcomers, some very beginner level of learning English, they might want to learn words like racism and discrimination before a more basic word. That's what a beautiful story of saying, like, Thank you for sharing that story because it really helped me see how, how beautiful this is where kids can bring their con their home experience into the context and sharing that. And then by doing that, we go deeper into the conversation. Can you tell us more about the guided writing part? You talked about the guided reading part. Sure. So again, we're using the language structures from the guided reading book as a guide to what we're teaching in the writing. And so if uh, a particular book they've been reading, let's say, let's say it's a fiction book um, and there is a structure of using dialogue, conversation between two characters, then that would be used as the example to then teaching the students how to write um, a small passage, including dialogue. It's like a mentor text. And yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and that would be done orally. I mean, or, oral is always the, the beginning of any of these strategies and interwoven through everything. Uh, because I really believe that you have to um, have practice saying things orally that you're going to encounter in text. Um, and even in a book introduction, I'll, I'll weave that into just in a sort of a natural way. I'll use the structures that I know they're going to encounter in the book, but make it seem like just a natural conversation. But that's a whole other thing. So then also the topics in the books are, are going to lend themselves to, to what they're going to write about as well. Um, yeah, so mentor text format, yes. Um, choice is, I think, incredibly important. So the students are going to take what is of interest to them from that book or text and then write what they choose maybe to write about will then lead to what types of language structures they need to learn. But to keep it focused and explicit, which is really important, that might be negotiated as a group. But within a small group, that is possible if you just have, you know, four students. Um, yeah, so it's... Uh, the other part of writing is uh, the students have been writing their own uh, 
I'll call them student created level texts. Oh, cool. So um, then this is in collaboration with some wonderful colleagues that I have who initiated this, but um, they are using some of the structures of books they've read, the leveled books and their guided reading to then create books of their own. And they'll do this just in a simple Google slide format. Um, some of, you know, some of the books, they, it depends on where they're at with what they want to write about. Some of them want to just write a story. Some want to write uh, information text about something they know a lot about, like, like digging a well, <laughs> for example, right? Or we have students that are, were tailors and, you know, all sorts of skills. So that a lot of them are that sort of thing. They're um, procedural kind of writing. And, uh, and then they will insert sometimes personal photos or just stock photos. Um, and then this is the exciting thing. Then those books become a part of our guided reading book collection that other students read. And it is amazing to see newcomer students light up when they see either a student they know that has been, um, you know, a MLL and maybe has mo moved on to other courses, but they recognize them from the school. Or even if they don't recognize them, they just know this is somebody around their age from possibly their cultural background, country of origin, and it's very, very affirming. Right. And yet it's, they're learning to read at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. It's affirming because it reflects their experiences. It brings in their uh, lived experiences and it, it, it inspires kids because, let me start over, it inspires kids because they can see themselves as writers, right? That's right. Right. It says like, oh, even though I'm just developing my English literacy skills, that means I. Can, however, I can still publish, right? And they're really they're sharing their, they're letting us walk into their world, through the book. That's right. And kids are saying like, yes, I, I see myself in this book because this is a book written by a kid that experienced the same thing. And also, there's one, uh, there's one, one more thing I wanted to say about that. Oh. And it's written at a level where kids can understand. Yes, because exactly. Because it's written by the kids. That's right. And yeah, a lot of them have done cooking, you know, the uh, different things that they've cooked with their families. And we'll just take take pictures at home while they're doing it. And uh, it, yeah, it's just, um, it's so engaging, but also helping them to learn, learn to read and write sharing the power code right, right. this is mm -hmm. like a, a this is like a master lesson of how to uh, how to use a balanced literacy approach with kids yeah oh I'm just thinking it, it and a very this is really adaptable to you know push in type of programs too right. and and so it doesn't necessarily have to be um, you know in a sheltered program setting it, it could very much be a, a teacher um, with some MLLs in their class could do guided reading with the whole class, but this, this is sort of just a um, one of those um, universal design things, right? Where where it's good for everybody, but then to be using some of these strategies and to also always be looking through the MLL lens, um, I think is yeah, is really powerful. Right. You mentioned working in small groups. What does tell me more about what does it look like for guided reading and using one of those texts that the kids wrote? The structure of it. Um, or more what, what happens during the lesson. Yeah, what happens during the lesson. Yeah, so uh, there's the, there's sort of that gradual release of responsibility. So the teacher is modeling um, something first. And so they're maybe doing some explicit teaching in some area that, that we have seen in the data, the running record data that that group needs. Then they are, um, introducing the topic to the students, which is really important and the new vocabulary they will encounter. Um, but then followed from there, it, it's very much, as I said, sort of um, the students working through at their own pace and uh, reading the text aloud or in their heads um, and problem solving, trying to apply what they know. Prompting is a really a big part of it. Uh, and it's, it's a bit of a skill giving the student the, the correct level of prompt that they need. So when I say prompt, for example, if a student encounters a word that they, they don't know, um, let's say, what the word is, and they're not making an attempt at all, 
because attempts in a running record, that, that's a great thing. Even if they don't get the word right, at least they're using some strategy. If they don't attempt at all, then you might uh, say something like, look at the first letter. What sound does that make? But of course, we don't want this to be just straight phonics lessons. So then you're going to say, look, look at the picture. And can you see something in the picture that, that is, starts with that letter? So if it's the word red, for example, then they're, they're isolating the er sound. Then they're looking at a picture of a red flower and they're saying er and red and then they're putting it together. So it, it's just prompting them, but not just saying that's the word red, you know, <laughs> and it, but there are even less supportive prompts than that uh, for a student that, you know, so it's a lot about knowing your student um, individually and in your group of students, what level is, is going to um, take them towards the most independent um, problem solving possible because that's when it sticks it i yeah i think we all know that as learners that you know it's when you really dig in there and try to do something on your own with prompting with you know a little bit of instruction first that's when you'll remember how to do it the next time yeah this is so so very very cool i feel like the um this could be a book in itself as you're sharing it um, you just make it really practical for teachers there's another thing I want to uh, applaud you for in this framework where as a language specialist, this is where the co-planning happens, where you can co-plan with your content teachers to say, hey, what are you learning about? Then this will be the fodder, the concepts and the, and the content that you'll be teaching your kids in the language development classes. So it's really like not saying like one kid, one group of kids, they're learning about migration in one class, but then another group of kids, they are actually learning about the wheels on the bus when they're in their language development classes. Right, exactly. And when you talk about, I, I'm such a strong believer in the co-planning, co-teaching model, um, but I often hear of the co-assessment coming at the end. Right. And yes, there, there is the summative um, you know, part of it that, that we need to do, but I just feel like the co-assessment is the window to co-planning with teachers. Yes. Yes. I, I, in many years of working with teachers and and helping, you know, what my thesis focused on was was what helps teachers shift their pedagogy because that can sometimes be a difficult process. And you know, teachers have lots of experience doing something a certain way, and they feel you know it's been successful, and it's hard to get people to try something new. But when you look at data and you look at specific evidence um, of what a student knows, like I said, from an asset point of view, that opens up a lot of, of windows. And then even more than, oh, okay, well, that's why they're struggling with this, because they weren't quite ready to learn that yet. Or, oh, I didn't need to focus on teaching them the letter sounds on an alphabet sheet, because they already know that. You know, we're, re we're ready to go to, to something else. And um, it just opens up conversations, whereas sometimes I feel like if you leap right to the co-planning, um, it, there's sometimes more barriers than if you just talk about student work right. and student teacher moderation of student work. Hence, right. it can often open things up. Right. I, I really appreciate how you talked about that, about um, the where co-assessing is the gateway to co-planning. Right? I always talk about yes. when I, I always share with teachers that uh, co-planning is co-teaching, and when we focus on co-assessing, it's a maximizer of our time when we co-plan. That's right. I want to ask you about your running record. Can you talk about uh, the codes that you use for the running record? Because I feel like that's sure. a really important part, part of seeing what the kids are already doing. Yeah, sure. Um, so as I mentioned, there there's two aspects to running record assessment. One is um, the scoring of it and finding out what level is best for a student. And then there's the analysis part. To, to me, the analysis is by far the most important. Um, so running record uh, analysis uh, traditionally is great, it's asset-based, but it is based on entirely on um, our students thinking about the meaning in the in the book are they thinking about the syntax and are they thinking about um, the visual cues or basically the letter sounds and phonics okay so that's that's fine and can be informative if 
um, the student uh, is an English speaker, just only an English speaker. But I felt, okay, if we're going to use this tool, we have to think from the um, MLL perspective through the MLL lens. Um, I mentioned the codes L1 language transfer. So let's just talk about that first. Um, I feel it's important that we're, we're language detectives as teachers. <laughs> I'm going to call it that. And I'm certainly not a linguist. I'm not trained in, in uh, being, uh, you know, knowing a lot. But over the years, um, I've just been really curious. Right. And I think that's maybe comes from a lot of different things, including, um, you know, my daughter spent her first four years in Thailand. And I, I studied Thai, toddler Thai, I call it, for, for a couple of years, um, just to, to make that connection with her and, and just all the students of varied backgrounds I've worked with. So I, I always want to find out, so what is this in your language and how, how does uh, the structure work? And so I think it's from talking to students for many years that I thought we need to incorporate this into, into teaching them. Um, so if we have it coded in an actual um, diagnostic or formative assessment, then that puts the spotlight on it for teachers that are learning about what the kids need, what their students need. For example, I mentioned uh, Bresenio and Klein's research. They found, and this was with grade one MLLs, uh, Spanish speaking, that monolingual teachers, teachers that only spoke English, would interpret an error like, um, let's say in the text it says um, uh, ran, the dog ran, but uh, the student said run. Then a monolingual teacher will often interpret that as they need to learn the letter sound A. They don't know their vowels, let's say, right? Whereas if you think about it through the MLL lens, it could very likely be that they haven't learned a regular past tense verb structure, right? So it, it's just a whole other different way of looking at it. If they're not at that, that level of um, English language development and they haven't learned a regular past tense, and we know how challenging that can be, then, then they're going to uh, read that at the current level of their oral English, you know, what they're accustomed to saying in their speech, right? Why does that matter? Because it matters um, in how, how that teacher is going to teach the student. If they're focusing on letter sounds and vowels and that student doesn't need that, and, and what they really need is to hear the new language structure and the point of reference to how it is in their first language, I think you're going to accelerate learning um, much more quickly. That's just one example. Um, but I, I really feel it's, uh, it's part of our job or <laughs> many things uh, that we need to be aware of, but just to really dive in there and be a language detective and be informed about our students uh, first languages and then like find a way to record it because right. it's one thing to talk about this and I think you'll talk to most teachers of multilingual learners and they'll say yes they know the importance of first language they know that we should value it but how are we how are we um, finding ways to assess its impact you know how 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 are we impacting their teaching uh, with with what we're learning so um, I think, I think that's critical. I, I could talk a lot more about specific examples and running records, but maybe that's another, <laughs> that's another session or another um, you know, thing I could share with you. Because I really, I, I zero in on it a lot more specifically um, in some other sessions that I've done. Right. But even something like pronunciation, for example, um, you know, that's something I think that really needs to be uh, thought about deeply for many reasons. Um, one is, of course, there's just different letter sounds associated with with um, letters in different languages. Also, there's letters, there's sounds that are non-existent in some languages and right. are in others, and that you might um, just substitute the closest that you know. I remember when I taught in uh, Shanghai, China, and I was just learning some very basic Mandarin, and uh, there was a sound that was very hard for me. It was like a zh sound, kind of like a kind of like a J and a Z sound together. Right, right. So, I, so I tried to think of, I tried to approximate right. what was the closest sound to that that I knew in my language. Right? We always use our point of reference. Right. Um, so I think uh, I think that's really important just to help students have that that connection. 
Well, we're running out of time, so <laughs> should we talk about your Welcome Center, or would you like to talk about the language experience approach, which you have talked about twice already? Uh, are you going to talk about the traffic light as well, yes. or, or yes. you always do that? Yes. Okay, just very briefly about the Welcome Center. Um, just I'm, I'm shifting yet again to another um, role, still with my school board district, but uh, I'm going to be working at what we call the Welcome Center, or it's like a reception center for, for newcomers. And uh, it's an interesting role to be transitioning to. I feel really qualified in a lot of ways because of my experience with assessment, but it's also, um, you know, has a tendency to be a bit of a, a gatekeeper process, I guess I'll call it, which, which is something um, that I'm trying to work through. How do I align that with, with my beliefs, um, especially equity and assessments? So um, I've really kind of come down to thinking about it as, I think with initial assessment, when you are trying to learn about the whole student so that they can be best placed in programs and courses, I like to think of it as a personalized assessment as opposed to standardized assessment. Um, I, I, you know, we have, I'm sure you, you do in uh, where you are and, you know, throughout North America, there's all sorts of standardized assessments and this has been, you know, great emphasis on that. But um, I think when we are at the initial stages, um, we want to just find out what does that student know? And in order to do that, we need to allow them to um, use first language. First language assessments, I think, are critical. Um, I think choice is really important. Um, choice of text that they're going to read to you. So for the same reasons that I talked about with guided reading, translanguaging opportunities, like I'll refer back to the, the student who was writing the book with his brother. Uh, why not let them write in English and their first language um, for the written part of the assessment? If you're getting more information about what they know that way and what they are able to do, then, then why wouldn't we do that? And uh, I think asset-based too, I'm, I, it's one of my <laughs> primary things is, is finding out what they know um, and then passing that information on. If you are the, the gatekeeper and you are passing this information on to the schools that they are going to, then please let that be asset focused um, with the idea that you, you continue to build from there. I think this is particular, well, it's important for really all MLLs, but particularly emergent literates where it may appear, you know, if they couldn't read what we call a level one book, for example, there are all sorts of other things that they are able to demonstrate that they can do. I, I do some assessments called Concepts About Print. People that are in early literacy know about this. So, you know, what do they have orientation to how a book works? Do they know where the front of the book is? Do they know where the back of the book is? Can they distinguish words from letters from spaces? You know, all that is information that you can gather even if a student isn't reading at a level one text. Yeah, so um, lots more about that. But I, I think reception centers, welcome centers that are doing this sort of assessment can be a model for equitable, equitable assessment than in the schools because they receive the reports mm -hmm. that, and the assessment. Your school, your school district is lucky to have you there at the leadership role to really help uh, make it more equitable for students. Let's end with traffic light teaching. Can you tell us your lights? Sure. I love this part of your <laughs> podcast. Um, I would say the, the red would be to stop teaching MLLs, phonics and grammar in isolation. Yeah, we talked about I, I, from the beginning and every, anything that I've taught, I, I really feel that the one size fits all um, prescribed lessons. Uh, may, there may be good intent by the educators that are using them, but it seems pretty um, important to me that MLLs need to have context. They need to have connections to their own personal experiences and knowledge, whether that comes from formal education or not. So that's that's critical, and so that also ties into assessment for me as well. You know, the personalized rather than standardized. Um, the yellow, the yellow is uh, is 
just asking that people reconsider if they have an assumption of first language literacy when they are working with students and how is that impacting their instruction. Mm, Um, Because in my experience, that matters. That matters. It it, it matters um, if a student is completely non-literate in in their first language, if even they're semi-literate or literate, that information uh, should impact the type of instruction and strategies that you're using. It, it's not in it by any means. Um, it's just different ways of knowing, right? So it's not uh, at all a judgment on what the student knows. It's just different ways of knowing. And I feel we need to be aware of that. And that goes back to my experience with that teacher with the research study of, um, you know, what I call traditional ESL teaching was being used with a very, uh, a group with a lot of diversity in their background and their education. Um, and I feel we need to be aware of that. And then uh, the green is uh, be a language detective. <laughs> I, I think that uh, you don't be intimidated by that. Don't be intimidated by feeling you need to be experienced in knowing about linguistics. Um, ask your students about their languages. You know, they, they light up and it makes them feel um, proud about the proficiency that they have. And um, inform yourself um, about transfer and, and how students might be doing that and uh, just view additional languages as an asset. Um, what might appear to be an error is, is often a sign of proficiency right. in oh, first language. Oh, I love that. It's being a detective and seeing positively. Well, I, well mm-hmm. Stephanie, I think and I know that this is a book in the making. Uh, I can tell because you already have a framework, a structure that's already backed by research and then we uh, confirmed through real life experiences. So I am excited for this book. You need to find a publisher who's willing to believe in your mission and your school district's mission to share this because I can think this is like the talk, read, talk, write version for uh, life students. So uh, the field needs a book like this and you have given us a really great structure, a sound practical structure for helping kids. I know that if I was to return back to the US to work this is one of the books that I would be looking for in the bookshelves and reading it and annotating it and letting it soak into my soul. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Kapkunka, Don. That means a whole lot to me coming from you. I, I have such admiration for all the work you do. And I can't tell you the impact of, of your podcast and um, for me and, and sharing with, with my colleagues. So um, you have such a, a wide range of topics and the depth of conversation is just amazing. Well, we always are, uh, we always, teachers here, I, I know, love the Canadian teachers and the Canadian scholars. So I'm adding you to that category, Stephanie. Thank you, Tom. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, onto our recap. I was so inspired by this conversation with Stephanie. I feel slightly more prepared to teach life. My takeaway, my reminder from this podcast is to always start with students' assets, to collaborate with content teachers so that multilingual students are learning grade level content, to explicitly teach literacy instruction, to start the English learning journey with oral literacy. And of course, to not teach skills in isolation. In the next episode, I'm so excited to share the first Hmong guest with you, Dr. Alex Zong, who will talk about working with SLIFE and students from collectivist communities. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. 
tweeted me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. 